Some people say he boxed like Jack Dempsey and sang like John McCormack. Others say he boxed like John McCormack and sang like Jack Dempsey. likes of me, it's like the end of a Nera to Jack Dahl is dead. It's, a, it's another character gone that will never, ever be replaced on this planet. Boxer, singer, film star, playboy. In the 1930s, Jack Doyle was the darling of London. Hailed as future world heavyweight boxing champion and idolised as a pop star in the days before the pop star era. More handsome, more charming, more talented and indeed luckier than most. For a few short years he lived out the impossible dreams of other men. He was adored by some of the world's richest and most beautiful women. He never was world champion. He was never even British heavyweight champion. His tenor voice rings out from a few cracked records which are seldom, if ever, played. Nobody now watches his handsome face and wonderful figure in the Hollywood movies that he made. The women that he loved all left him. His cars, racehorses and high lifestyle evaporated. Jack Doyle carelessly flung away what many spend their lifetime striving for and never achieve. He died just before Christmas 1978 at the age of 65, they buried him in Cove, the little seaside town where he grew up, a long way from the cheers of the boxing rings in London and New York, a long way from the applause of the English music halls, a long way from the glamour of Hollywood, and a long way too from the pubs of Notting Hill Gate where he spent his last years. It seems funny to have to describe Jack Doyle. <laughs> Everybody knows that he was six foot four, very well built, especially when he was young. They used to call him the Adonis of the Ring. He was later called the Gorgeous Gale, which he loved. He really loved that description. He was fighting in White City, and actually we're in Bayswater Road now, and White City is about three miles away. And they had the police out. You could not move from here, from Marble Arch down to White City. He became a man in London that one wished to avoid. Uh, because he was always broke and he was always pleading and he got a way of pleading that you couldn't leave him without giving him something. You often heard people say he was born, I think he was invented. That's true, that's the way I speak about him because I think he was a smashing man. Never was uh, a more handsome boxer and when he came into the ring in his beautiful green silk dress and gown all the ladies would stand up and cheer only for the him. His opponent was always some evil man. They just saw Jack as their hero and flowers were thrown into the ring. Well, he would have filled any arena today. 
And on television, well, you know what uh, they think about Muhammad Ali. He would have been as big a draw as him. In fact, he would probably have been a bigger one. Well, I first met uh, Jack uh, down at the Star and Garter, a pub at Windsor where all the boxers trained. Len Harvey was training. And Jack was a very handsome young guardsman, Irish guardsman, about 18 years of age. And he broke bounds to come in to watch the boxing. And he asked if he could um, have a few rounds with some of the sparring partners. And he impressed everyone. And uh, Dan Sullivan, who was the manager of Len Harvey, d decided that Jack might be a future heavyweight champion. And he eventually bought him out of the Irish Guards for just a few pounds. In those days, we were all looking for what we called white hopes, people who would uh, bring back the uh, heavyweight championship of the world to, to this country, to England. And this looked the absolute... The, the, the ideal person and he got this terrific punch in his right hand because as soon as he got started they took him first of all to the Crystal Palace it was a big arena it's burnt down now a, a place called the Crystal Palace in uh, South London and they gave him his chance and he won his first nine fights inside two rounds each with this big right hand and nothing could stop him. But after that, everybody wanted to see Jack Doyle because he used to come into the ring with a great big smile. Oh, today he could have made millions. There's no question about it. He was such a, an exciting fighter to watch. Because he came out ready for a fight from the first... As soon as the gong sounded, he was out of his corner and his arms were going and he was punching away right from beginning to end. And uh, when he... When the round was over, he would uh, heave up his shoulders and walk back with his chest stuck out. He'd walk over and chat and look over the ropes and wave to someone. And naturally, the fans liked that sort of thing. He was a showman. He lived in a luxury block of flats in uh, Regent's Park, and uh, then he moved down to Buckinghamshire and bought a beautiful house in its own grounds down there with its swimming pool and through the most magnificent and parties and had all the society. He knew Ivan Novello and Noel Coward and anyone that was famous at a time, Flanagan and Allen. He had no fear and he need not have any fear because he'd got everything that a boxer needs. He got the physique, he got the, uh, the, the, the keen eyesight, he got the coordination of punches and he got the big punch which counts. He should have been heavyweight of the champion of the world. He frittered all his chances away, and it was, a, to me, one of the greatest tragedies of the boxing game. It was Flanagan and Allen who first um, brought him onto a stage. I think that was the first time in his life that he'd been on a stage, and he was at the Palladium. And they brought him up from the audience and introduced him, and, of course, every, he didn't have to introduce him. He was just beginning to be the toast of London at the time. He was boxing then, not singing. And he sang When Irish Eyes Are Smiling. Pulled the house down, I believe. <laughs> and that was his first taste of, I think, of show business. When Irish eyes are smiling Sure it is like a morning spring May 
Finally, he was given a match for the heavyweight championship of England against Jack Peterson. And when I tell you that they, it took place at the White City Stadium, which is a big open-air arena, and between 50 and 60,000 people crowded in, they didn't come to watch anybody else but Doyle. Peterson was the champion, he was a very popular man, but he didn't get anything. The, the arena shook when Doyle climbed into the ring. And he started straight away trying to knock Peterson out. And he gave him a very hard time in the first round. But he was so wild, he was so anxious to make this big win, which he could have done. He could have knocked Peterson out. And instead of that, he went wild, he hit, he didn't uh, direct his punches properly at all. And in the end, in the second round, he was disqualified for hitting low. And that was it. And that was the end of Jack Doyle, so far as a... A prospect was concerned. He just did things instinctively. He didn't go out and say, oh, I'm going to give a right punch or a left punch or I'm going to do this, that and the other. I think he just went in there and um, <laughs> just tried to get in his, what he knew he had, a famous punch, and uh, get it over with. But to plan anything to Jack was, was work or too much effort. It had to be, everything had to be automatic. And then he decided that he'd no need to train anymore. All he'd got to do was to go into the ring, hit somebody on the chin, they would fall down, they'd be counted out, and he would pick up a nice fat check, and that was it. And so he never went back into the gymnasium again. I don't think he ever did throughout the rest of his career. He really pinned all his hopes on this big right hand. And, of course, it proved his downfall. Could you train with some of the most beautiful women who all run out here? And he did. I mean that. He had some women. But he didn't like his face. He was too handsome in those days to be destroyed. You see, they spoiled him. You see, don't think he had a good manager. I think he had a manager who was uh, there to make all the money he could out of Doyle. But he must have been particularly stupid not to realise how he was destroying his own property by uh, taking him around into nightclubs and so forth and letting him mix with all sorts of people that would, could do him no good at all. He threw, uh, he, did, he was as much to blame or more to blame than Doyle because he was only a young man. He was only a boy, really. In those days, there was nobody really looking after a boxer's interests. And I would say Jack was exploited in his early days and no doubt disillusioned. But in fairness, he'd be a very difficult young man to, to discipline because uh, he wasn't too good on keeping appointments. But nobody would reprimand him about anything, and I think that's why he... Uh, well, it's like a child being spoilt. He thought he could get away with anything. Everybody forgave him. Thank God for the garden, 
Jack found that it was it, the money was so easy. He'd been he'd come from a very poor home. In fact, he told me himself that it was the the roof was so low that he couldn't stand upright in it when he was a grown up lad, and. Uh, it was amazing for him to be suddenly launched into London society. I never knew him as Jack Doyle, I knew him as Joe Doyle when he was growing up in the same street, known as the Holy Ground. I don't know where he got the Jack anyway, but he must be following Jack Dempsey as he was a boxer. He used to smuggle away into the pictures, you know. He never paid to go into pictures. He used to smuggle all the time, everything. That's the kind of the young fellow he was. When the boats would come in, we'd all scrawling for a fish. We'd be on the, the strands then looking for driftwood. The coal was cheap. But the money wasn't there to buy it. And then there used to be many a fight. I, I, as far as I remember, I fought him once, but that was a long time ago. Like, you know, he would fight him, but he knew when he, when he won all his fights, like amongst the kids, because he had the strength. I'd say he was more anxious to survive than get on. Survival meant an awful lot that time, you know. The bigger the family you had, the worse you were, because there might be six or eight in a room. Jack had a big family after that. The father had a lame step, and I don't think the father was fit for work. Jack never left himself short. He spoke and get a nod duck, a nod hen, now and then. he got the kidneys for the ducks, Mrs. Hogan's hens, above the back of his house. They always be getting knocked off now and again, you know. And it wasn't the hawk took him. All you had to do was say to Jack, where's, where's the good apples? Mo got onto boards. There were about four trees in the house. And you got all the wine saps, all the sweet apples. I couldn't bring anything home. Jack's mother would be delighted with it. For instance, we go back to the archers now. When I go with him and we'd all go together, like... But if my parents knew that I was out there, I'd get killed, flattened. But his parents always knew because he used to bring... And pill out and fill it with apples and bring them home. Jack provided for the house the best way he could. If he had a thousand pounds, he'd spend it in a, in a day, or if he hadn't got a thousand pounds, he'd borrow five or few. Jack was, um, you know, he took it as a... He used to say that uh, God never gave us money. Money was a man-made thing and uh, it was there to be spent. Whereas other people would be investing it and wondering what to do with it, Jack just went through it. Only when he was broke he went, came back to the ring. Only when he was broke, because he found that, that uh, the people he associated with, he could eat cheaply, he could make love cheaply. Everything happened uh, without costing him any money at all, but of course he, he had to uh, spend some money, and when he, whenever he was broke, he would come to a promoter and promise all sorts of things, and we'd let, uh, sometimes he never even turned up after he'd been given an advance. Because that way the man must have spent uh, more money than, uh, than he ever got with, with this. 
the people that he mixed with and that. No mind about what the money he earned, it's the other money that uh, he, he got from Delphine Dodge and people like that, you see. And a fantastic man, he, he could have been well on top, but I'm afraid Mr. Backer said us I ain't that. He was too fond of his women and wives. When in the first fight with Eddie Phillips, I was then a young Daily Express boxing writer, and when I got to Haringey, Sidney Holes, the promoter, called me into the dressing room. He said, um, now you've got some Irish blood in you, haven't you, Frank? Will you come and talk to this Irishman? He's blackmailing me. So I went into the dressing room, and Jack was sitting there on the table, again in that magnificent green dressing gown, smiling. And uh, he said to me, now, Frank, would you be an honest man and tell the promoter, who are all those people out in Haringey there to see tonight, Eddie Phillips or Jack Doyle? I had to be honest, I said, they're there to see Jack Doyle. So Sid Holes swore at him some very strong language, but signed a cheque for an extra £1,000, and then Jack went in the ring, and unfortunately, once again, he had Phillips in terrible trouble in the first round, had him all over the place, and then in the second round, Eddie swung one, Jack missed, hit the ropes and went through the ropes and was counted out, standing up outside the ropes. That's one of the few times I've seen a heavyweight knocked out, standing on his feet outside the ropes. But Jack will always tell you the story. At the time, he, he used to say to me, uh, I couldn't get back in the ring. One of uh, Eddie Phillips' uh, trainers had his foot on my foot and wouldn't let me get back. So Jack got £1,800 in all, not a lot of money, really, and he sailed on the Empress of Canada next day to America. And... Um, there was no war because Mussolini intervened at Munich. We had one year's grace, and in that time, Jack uh, had a few fights in America. He married um, Judith Allen, and the rather wisecrack of the time was that when they were divorced, they said he'd, n he'd never lost his punch, but he'd lost his duty. He didn't really reveal, I think, in what was he was really his inner thoughts. There weren't. Uh, they were never revealed to anybody, and I think that's why he was such a controversial character and uh, everybody got different opinions of him because he could uh, say one thing today and say absolutely, completely a different thing tomorrow on the same subject. He right. had no strong convictions of, of about any particular thing or anything, either himself or what he was and what he was doing or anything like that. I was at in New York and watched him fight a big fellow, a little bigger than himself, called Buddy Bear, who was the brother, younger brother of Max Bear, who was the heavyweight champion. And Doyle and he met in a, a New York arena, and I was there and saw it. And believe me, Jack came out and hit this other fellow on the chin with his right hand, and down he went. And he had the nerve to turn to the ringside where his wife was sitting and blow her a kiss. Meanwhile, the other fellow got up, came charging back into Doyle, who had no defence whatsoever, and was promptly put down and counted out. Now, that is the sort of escapades he got up to. And then, of course, he married Movita, and he came back here for that second fight with Phillips at White City, and that was in the summer of 1939, and then the war did come in the September. During the war, they held matinee boxing contest at a place called the Hoban Stadium. They held them in the, in the afternoon, they were allowed to, and 
if the uh, air raid sirens went, everybody had to go out of the hall. Well, during this particular time, when I was there, uh, there were two or three preliminary bouts had gone on when into the hall came Jack Doyle. At once, everybody started hooting, booing, whistling at him because he'd made such a disastrous last appearance. But he came in smiling, and at the end of the fight, he got up into the ring, looked all around everybody, waved his hand, and the booing was intense. He could, And then he started singing, and he got a very good voice. He started singing when Irish eyes are shining. And believe me, as soon as he reached the chorus, everybody joined in. The booing stopped, the whistling stopped, and everybody who thought they got a voice joined in, and the hall absolutely rang with this great Irish song. And when it was finished, he waved his hand and, they, and he went out of the hall and to all the cheers that he didn't get when he came in. He was born, I think, as a sort of a... With everything, his heart was bigger and his... Uh, he had more affection. He was able to spread his uh, affection, and it was infectious. People just to see him, see him in the street, their hearts lit up. You could see their expression changed immediately. They saw him. He did spread a lot of happiness around among other people. No one knows what how much money Doyle could have earned had he stuck to his task and really trained well and learnt learnt his boxing properly. In fact. He only had 20 fights in seven years, from 32 to 39, which, was, which is ridiculous. It's ridiculous for a man with all the potential that he got should box so little. But in those years, there were a lot of women in Jack Doyle's life. When he was divorced by the actress, Judith Allen, he dallied for a while with Delphine Dodge, the Dodge Motorcar Millionaires from Detroit. But he left her to marry another actress, Movita. For ten years they packed the music halls in England and Ireland with their duets. Movita later married Marlon Brando. He told me a story about how um, Christine Delphi's Dodge mother asked him to leave the country, to leave America, and Jack said he wouldn't. So they offered him $5,000 to leave her daughter alone. And uh, Jack told me she committed suicide after Jack going. He ordered the two crates of brandy and, uh, and drank us and left when Jack left. But she was keeping Jack with money like that. Jack was telling me 2000 3000 to what the races used to get off her. And she got him a big car with his name on it. Big Detroit motor car. He let, how he left the car after him and went to Mexico and met Movita. That's where I fell in love and stars above came out to play. And now as I wander, my thoughts ever stray. 
I think he really loved Mobita. I think she was his real love. But uh, he uh, he admired me greatly because I was so um, well. I was really so good to him. I did everything for him, and I was always there. You know, he could rely on me. I was with him for 28 years, you see. And uh, really, I was just his second mum, mummy. He always called me mummy. You know, and uh, that was. He never called me Nancy. Oh, she had left him about three years, I think, before I met him. In 49, in Dublin, three or four years, I'm not totally sure. And, um, of course, that had broken him up terrible. And he was in a pretty bad way when I met him. And I thought it was terrible for young, you know, for a young man with so much talent and everything to be just sitting around and drinking. But that's all he was able to do. That's all he could do. Nobody in Dublin would take him serious because he had made uh, quite a few mistakes and he'd been very uh, naughty. Well, he didn't really concentrate on it until uh, after he uh, had uh, the mishaps in boxing. And then it was then I think he decided that he would um, try singing. It was much easier and more glamorous, and uh, he felt that he could do something with his voice. He had a voice, and he did have it trained. He was trained by both an Italian and a German teacher. He sang in uh, all the theatres all over England. Variety was then what it, you know, what it, what television is now. Variety was then uh, the thing. You did a whole circuit. You did the circuit for whatever agent you were with. Bernard Delfont was his agent at the time, and um, he really had great plans for him. He really wanted to build a glamorous show around him. But Jack was never one to sort of concentrate a lot on anything. He liked living in New York. Jack, uh, Jack had um, the um, high style of living. When he, when he had the money in New York, he was always at the best nightclubs and always the best hotels, and he, he liked it here. But unfortunately, um, with a boxer, uh, you've got a lot of friends when you're on the up. Everyone wants to be your friend. It's all the hangers-on. But the loneliest place in the world is the loser's dressing room. And Jack lost rather uh, too many fights and uh, all his great friends, so-called, deserted him and then Jack could no longer live it up and, uh, of course, he made the best of it with um, going into pubs rather than the Dorchester Hotel and the Wardoff Story in New York. He, um, I thought, adapted himself very well, taking the 
rough with a smooth, and as he said, um, treating triumph and disaster and calling them imposters. Life became very difficult um, when drink was uh, taking real bad effect on him. He got to the stage where uh, he was waking up at six o'clock in the morning and he had to have a drink. And I always hid whatever he would have had the night before. And that used to work up to a point. But then the licensing laws in England changed and off-licenses, uh, supermarkets started to sell drink at half past eight in the morning. Well, once that started, he just, uh, it was no holding him because he just went out with the pretext of buying a morning paper and he just went up and went into a supermarket and uh, bought himself some drink. And that was it. Once he had that drink then, he, he was off for the rest of the day. There was nothing to be done about it. So he was just living in a complete uh, state of stupor from morning to night. But I mind the time over the coach and horses, which has long since been closed, 1957 actually, when we was drinking Merry Down Cider and we spun out of it and none of us had any money to get any more. And I'd got one elbow on the table and Jack looked. He said, Arthur, you've got some cold cufflinks on. I said, oh, no, I have. My sister bought them for me. He said, well, take them over Mellish's, which was a pawnbroker's nearby, which I did. And we resumed drinking Merry Down Cider. Well, as far as show business people was concerned, he just, uh, they weren't very fond of him and they used to try and uh, keep in touch with him and uh, invite him here, there and everywhere and he used to get invited to a lot of very important places and to very important people's parties and that. But he wouldn't go. He would just prefer to go into uh, the Lord of Hay and... Paddington and the Norfolk Hotel and join all the boys, you know, the working class people, and the people of the street, man of the street, were his choice of company. But there's one thing, he never changed his spot. That's why he was really low. He was never big-headed. He always went to the people he was more or less brought up with. That was his trouble, he gave most of his money away to those type of people. Jack finished in, in variety and um, he was back to where he started in Dublin again. He was drinking too much and uh, he'd been made bankrupt for quite a lot of money. So um, he realised that if he was to co continue working in variety, he would have been working for nothing because he owed so much tax. So he, he decided to pack that up. And um, he just started going into the pubs again during the day and uh, there was always somebody there delighted to see him. And It was always, what are you having, Jack? And he would say, I'll have a small scotch. But they used to think, we can't offer Jack Doyle a small scotch. So he never got a small scotch or a wee one, as he used to say. It was always double for Jack's. So um, he continued drink more and life became just as it was when I first knew him really he was doing nothing only passing the time away and 
just having conversations in the pubs with his friends. They were very pleasant, I believe. They used to all enjoy themselves. And they never got tired of his company. I think that uh, one thing in different uh, between, you know, the difference between Jack and other what you would call personalities was that Jack, um, people never seemed to get tired of his company or never get tired of listening to him. They knew he was going to sing terrible, but they would still go and uh, and listen to him just because it was him. And it wasn't to listen to him singing in the end. It was to have a jaw with him afterwards. That that made their that was a pleasure for them. They didn't didn't care what it cost. I think sometimes some Irish men used to leave their wives short of money just because they used to happen to bump into Jack Doyle. There's always a bit of laughter anyway when he he was around. Like, you know. Jack would walk in, you'd hear him talking fast side of the barn. Everybody who get a bit around him, like, you know, and talk to him, buy him a drink, of course. <laughs> Many people whom I didn't know would come in and say, hello, Jack, and over would go a large scotch. That happened several times a day. <laughs> and he could never get a job like an ordinary person. He was too well known. Once he'd finished with show business... Um, there was no alternative for him. He was Jack Doyle and he couldn't just go out and get an ordinary job. And I don't think he, he would have he could have held it down, even if he had wanted to. You because people would always be talking about the past and uh, upsetting him. He didn't pretend to be upset, but really, I mean I, if you think about it, it must have upset him a lot. Because that is all people wanted to talk about with him, was the past. Nobody wants to talk about the present, apart from saying, what are you having, Jack? As he said to me once, what, whatever I'm doing now, I'm still Jack Doyle, and that's all it's said. Poor Jack, I knew he was ill, and he dwindled down to half his size. Oh, I, I love Jack. I knew him when he was young and handsome. He was always, he was always polite to women. That's what I liked about him. Well, you catch hold of my leg here. I thought it was 1917 again. I used to squeal and nearly got barred. I nearly got barred. And he got hold of my leg two days before he died. I gave him a, whis a whiskey. Maybe I hastened his end. I hope not. Well, I left him, um about 15, 16 months before he died. I just left. I didn't say goodbye even. I couldn't. Well, he would only just stopped me and made more promises. He was forever promising, promising. I rang him up and uh, spoke to him on the phone and he just begged me to come back. But I just couldn't. I knew it was no good. I knew there was no more I could do. It was just finished. Because I knew that it was just coming to the end, you know. And I knew I wouldn't be able to uh, stick it. I wouldn't. I didn't want to see the end. Well, I'd seen so much. 
I felt I just couldn't be there at the end. He was certainly drinking anything he could get his hands on. Because he, he never moaned, that man. Not all through, all through the bad times, he never moaned whatsoever. But it could be the fact that he was pining for Nancy and was too proud to tell anybody. And, or otherwise, he was so sick and ill that he just wanted to Oh, yes, I'm sure he did. Well, he didn't want to... He didn't want to uh, be uh, conscious, to be sober and conscious, to see his state. So to drink was about the only alternative for him. I don't know about good times, but uh, we, we always had a, a, a drink, and he was never without somewhere to go, even in the worst circumstances. As you know, he, that man decided to um, put him up for a month, but he said, I'm short of blankets. So I brought two blankets up here, and uh, he wasn't here, so I took him back home, brought him back the next day, dinner time, lunch time if you wish, and a friend of mine said, you'll not be needing them, he's gone. He'd drink a glass of champagne and... Uh, when he signed for the Peterson fight, he had a glass of champagne and uh, he sang a song. And uh, it was rather, I can remember, he had a beautiful white sports jacket on and a red carnation in it. And I remember writing the story, uh, Jack Doyle's Signs With a Song. With his power in your smile, sure as thorn you'd beguile, so there's never a teardrop should fall. With your light little laughter, like some fairy song, and your eyes twinkle bright as can be, you should laugh all the while. And all other times smile And I'll smile, I'll smile for me Ah, church, you're with the angels now You're with, you've met St. Peter now He's with the angels I hope they give him a barley wine and a whiskey. I mean, Jesus turned the water into wine. I hope Jack gets one. He needs one when he enters the portals. When Irish hearts are happy, all the world seems bright and again. But when I